Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Elna Nagasako, and I'm an MPH student here at the School of Public Health, as well as a Commonwealth Fund Harvard University Fellow in Minority Health Policy. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Drew Altman, the President and CEO of the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation. Based in Menlo Park, California, the Kaiser Family Foundation is a leader in health policy and communications. In the early 1990s, Dr. Altman led the transformation of the Kaiser Family Foundation into a major healthcare information source. The foundation's work is featured frequently in leading health policy journals, such as Health Affairs, as well as in major news outlets, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. Prior to joining the Kaiser Family Foundation, Dr. Altman held a number of prominent leadership positions in health policy, including serving as commissioner of the Department of Human Services for the state of New Jersey, as director of health and human services for the Pew Charitable Trust, and as vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Altman holds a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and did his postdoctoral work here at the Harvard School of Public Health. He also holds an honorary doctorate from the Morehouse School of Medicine. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations as well as the Institute of Medicine and serves on the governing council of the Institute. A fan of the Boston Red Sox, Dr. Altman grew up in Boston and we are so pleased to have him here. <laughs> today to speak on overhauling a major foundation, reflections on leadership, and now I will turn the program over to Dr. Robert Blendon. I'm going to follow your seriousness look here. Uh, so this is a, a series we started in the new division uh, uh, with the encouragement of Dr. Uh, Julio Frank to really expose people to leadership decision making. And the whole idea is that when the next generation emerges and you are in a responsible position, you can think through the way people who had to make those decisions thought about them, the pressures, the experiences, the individual things that actually go through people's minds. And the background for this is that so many uh, of our students go on to quite extraordinary roles and they find themselves in settings where they may not have been exposed to all the pressures that go with decision making. So the effort of this is really, before you get there, to have insights from people from very successful backgrounds. And so uh, uh, what Drew Altman did was take a uh, foundation which had been a very important in traditional grant making and turn it into an information source across the United States with information that's 24 hours a day that's distributed through all types of websites and, and everything else. And it did not occur by some dream. Someone really took a decade to shape it. So what we're here today is we've asked uh, Drew to have really some opening remarks about how he thought this through. And then I want you to question him, thinking if you were in his position, what were the issues you would have thought about? And that's what's unique about it. It's how he and you think about these decisions. So um, because Drew is someone uh, I worked with, for those of you who are watching this, we'll have to put up with some humor. <laughs> uh, Drew? <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Elna and Bob. Um, that was a 
beautifully delivered introduction, but totally over the top. And every time <laughs> I get an introduction like that, I always tell my favorite story, which is a story of a letter I got from my then 94-year-old grandmother the day, the day, I got my PhD in political science at MIT. And all it said was, Dear Drew, about that degree, congratulations. So what are you going to do, open a political science store? <laughs> now, <laughs> I told the story to warm you up, but actually not only to warm you up, I want to come back to the political science store, because it is sort of what I did. And I will come back to that in just a minute. I want to recognize a few people, Dr. Molly Ann Brody, who's here, because she is my right-hand person and also, I believe, the first PhD in health policy from this place, and Dr. Michael Sinclair, who is now here, uh, running your new global health leadership program, but was for 20 years or so our senior VP and did magical things in South Africa and in Africa. No one has ever been better. He should be doing one of these sessions. He will be. Le <laughs> <laughs> leveraging uh, foundation dollars. Yeah. Uh, and also Sasha Bushko, who's here, um, who's on loan from us. And she thinks she's developing her career by getting a degree here and doing other things, but sh she's coming back at some point. <laughs> also, I do want to say, and it was quickly mentioned, I am an alumnus of this place. Um, because I did a wonderful postdoctoral fellowship at the Harvard School of Public Health, and it had a profound impact. Uh, literally, it changed my entire career. Uh, actually, I will tell you the story quickly. I, kn I know how much time I have, but you have to hear this. Uh, it was a signature uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health that changed my career because I went to join the Carter, yes, I'm that old, the Carter administration. Uh, and uh, what happened was I went down and I was about to take a position, I can't remember the GS level, but it was some high GS level. And uh, all of a sudden the Office of Personnel Management refused to allow me to take the position because uh, in the year before I had had three full-time positions and two part-time positions and they just said, well, you, that can't be. You can't do that. It's not legal. And my career was over at that point before it started. All of a sudden I discovered this thing called an IPA. It stands for Intergovernmental Personnel Act. We also call it Rent-A-Fed, which allows the federal government to exchange people with universities and with states. There was a condition. The sending institution, in this case the Harvard School of Public Health, has to agree to take or had to agree to take you back at equal status, equal pay. Well that couldn't happen because my postdoctoral fellowship was over at the end of the year. So I went to the head of my program, a wonderful man who had run Brown University named Don Horning, and I said, Don, could you sort of just sign this form? You, you sign here. And he sort of looked at it and said, oh, absolutely, sure, I'll sign. And off I went, and it changed my life because my life became about public service. That is how I think about what I do. Whether I was doing it in federal government or in state government or in nonprofit organizations. So my most important advice to you about careers is find somebody who will sign your forms. <laughs> It fundamentally changed my life. <laughs> Lastly, I cannot let Bob get away uh, completely scot-free because he's not just sitting here. He has been a colleague. He has been actually a mentor. He has been a partner. He has actually played a role in crafting the Kaiser Family Foundation over all of these years. When he came to Harvard from RWJ, where we worked together, a, a funny thing happened he discovered the sweater vest. <laughs> and 
this world. We are erasing this at the moment, right? <laughs> world exploded with gray and crimson and sweater vests. So, in honor of our affection and love for both, today I have brought. <laughs> Keep this off camera. The world's oh, it is a tag. The world's first Kaiser Family Foundation oh. blue. <laughs> but, <laughs> but here's the deal: you have to wear this at your first Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant <laughs> review. <laughs> All right. Now the serious stuff. Yes, that was the serious stuff. I am going to talk about, because he gave me an assignment, revamping the Kaiser Family Foundation, but I actually have to go back for a couple of minutes to, um, I think I'll just go back as far as the New Jersey Department of Human Services, because it was really there that I forged my own, such as it is, approach to decision making uh, and um, to leadership and I want to tell you a little bit about that. It begins first with a short story and, and, and then I want to get um, more serious and substantive which I'm actually known for being. I was once described in a newspaper as a nice guy trapped in a deadly serious face. <laughs> I'm actually a serious person. But um, it starts with the first day on the job. The problem was I couldn't find the job. I'd never been to Trenton. There's no reason to go to Trenton. Um, and so I walked around and I just couldn't find the place and there was this big building which was it, and this guard saw me. I was incredibly young, and he said, it's in there, kid, go in there. So I walked in, and after some haggling, they let me upstairs, and there was no sign on the building. So this was my idea, to take control as a very young person of, of this giant agency, um, third of the state budget, third of the state workforce. And, <laughs> and um, I walked in, and I said, look, we're the largest organization in the state of New Jersey at the time we were. The numbers wouldn't be impressive now, but you know, 27,000 people, $8 billion, bigger then than the drug companies. We should be proud of what we do. There will be a sign in the front of the building. I want to sign right away. Well, nine months later, after the job was stopped, first because the wrong procurement rules re processes were used, second because the wrong union team worked on the job, and then finally by an amazing letter from the State Department of Treasury, which literally said this job should not go forward because it is too small to do, um, a concept which could only occur in government. They came in, and it was my birthday, March 21st, and there have been stories in the newspaper, will Altman get his sign? And there were maybe 800 people down in front of the building, and they called me down in front of the building. It was a giant sheet in front of the building, and the press was there, and they peeled it back, and there it was the New Jersey State Department of Hunan Services. <laughs> they spelled it wrong. I learned a big lesson. Uh, you know, in the public sector, you deal with these giant issues, but it's hard to get stuff done. In the private sector, you may deal with smaller things, but you know the rest of the, the, rest of the sentence. So um, there I was. As the head of this thing, uh, I was inexperienced, I went to see the governor and I said, do you have any thoughts about our agenda? And that was the response I got. Um, I went to see my division directors, eight powerful division directors, big players in New Jersey. They all had billion plus dollar budgets. And they just said, well, we want more money for our divisions. I said, this isn't going to work. Um, so I went on a retreat with myself. Um, 
And I went back to see the governor about a week later, and I literally said, okay, I think this is going to be our agenda. First, we're going to lead the country in welfare reform. This was a long time ago. This was a big controversial subject, and these are my ideas for a welfare reform program. This fits you. He was trying to be either a presidential or vice presidential candidate. Second, we're going to lead the country in Medicaid managed care. This was before it was really in vogue. And in fact, we ended up running the first uh, federally qualified state-run HMO. Uh, leave aside the fact that it didn't work, but that was <laughs> for a bunch of other reasons. Third, we're going to develop the largest school-based youth services program in the country. Uh, we're going to start with 100 sites. It has to be part of the state budget, not a demo program, and paid for by Medicaid. So there's a permanent financing mechanism, which was easy to do because I also ran Medicaid. Um, these were the things for the governor as well as for me. And then after that, there were two other things. We're going to completely reform homeless services in the state, probably not legal under federal rules, but we should do it anyway. And we're going to develop a broad range of home and community-based services for people with HIV, which is something Bob and I had worked on at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and get a federal waiver to do that. And we ultimately did all those things. And that was how I made my name nationally and other things came from all that, um, especially in welfare reform where we had the lead program in the country and became the brokers for what was the national legislation of its day. So the question to get to my subject for today is where did all that stuff come from? Bob's question was how do you make decisions about revamping an organization, which I'll get to in a second. Well, one answer which wouldn't be totally dishonest is I don't have a clue. Um, another answer is through, and this is my word for you for today, a kind of strategic intuition about directions, about programs, in which you kind of very quickly compute what's politically possible, what is important to do, how much time you have, what, uh, do you have money, don't you have money, uh, uh, and it, it, uh, it, it's an instantaneous kind of uh, computation or intuition. It's not something you put in a computer. Uh, or think about even very logically. And that form of strategic intuition really became the basis for all of the decision-making um, I've ever done, including the basic vision which led to revamping Kaiser. So I will come back to that in just a second. Two other things about New Jersey. Second is, there you are at the top of this thing, you're all alone. I realized then you also have an obligation to lead. What is the job of a cabinet officer or a CEO? You're not just there as a manager. You're not just there as a steward. This is very important because some people define those jobs in those terms. I am a deadly serious manager, as these folks will tell you. Nobody spends more time on budgets and details and finances than I do. But that is not the job. You're actually there to lead. You are obligated to have a vision about the future and about your organization. You may fall on your face, but that is the fundamental job of a leader in those kinds of organizations. And I realized that that week in that job when no one else was suggesting anything about where we should go. And the third thing is circumstances really, really, really matter. They proscribe what your opportunities are. Do you have money? You don't have money. Do you have control of the legislature? You don't have control of the legislature. Um, how much time do you have? 
that really is a big one. Do you have four years? Do you have two years? What can you get started? What can you get finished? What can you do? And also, this is a bit of career advice, they affect what jobs you should take in the first place, especially government jobs. So the same job can be the greatest thing you ever did. That job for me in New Jersey was fabulous. Or it can be the worst job in the world, depending on those kinds of factors. Eight years later, they were taking the department apart. It was a miserable place to be. So circumstances really do matter. Now let's fast forward, because of my time constraints, to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, President Bush asked me to run HICFA, which later became CMS. I had a war with his chief of staff, John Sununu. I withdrew my nomination. I spent a few months at the Pew Charitable Trust as their first professional director of health and human services, and then the Kaiser Family Foundation um, came uh, calling. And so what had happened at Kaiser um, had actually never happened. I don't think it had ever happened before at a major national uh, foundation in the States. And we kind of diplomatically refer to it uh, in the organization as um, the Soviet purge um, or the Big Bang. But there was dissatisfaction with the organization's programs and with some other issues. Uh, I won't go into details today. And a decision was made that the president would leave and the chairman of the board would leave and a transition would be made from a professional but still family foundation to an independent national organization and they would um, uh, completely start over. Uh, and um, I arrived, uh, and I'll come back to that, uh, had to fire the entire staff and in a year we had a completely new mission agenda. Uh, began recruiting a staff. So it was not a startup in the sense that we had telephones and we had stationery, uh, but it was a restart, a complete restart of an, organ of an organization. And I will tell you, I had absolutely no interest in California. Um, you know, I'm from here, from Boston. In my family, it was regarded as a sign of weak character to admit to visiting California. Um, <laughs> my hope was that I would get tall and blonde, but you can see that that didn't work. Um, uh, I had many discussions, actually, at Henrietta's tables with the then chair of the board, who was the executive dean of the Kennedy School at the time, wonderful man named Hale Champion, who also became a mentor, which led to my doing this. And the board at the time, or group on the board, had a sense that health was becoming a bigger issue. I don't know, you're all too young, except for us to remember this, but it wasn't always the issue it is today. It was a second-tier issue. They had a sense, I think a correct one, that health was becoming the kind of issue that it is, it is today. And I just had um, a strategic intuition uh, that there could be a different kind of foundation, didn't make grants, that could play a role as a trusted, independent source of information, to use Bob's word, that's a shorthand for what we do, um, on all of these hotly contested big national issues. But it was not a technical vision. I'm a big believer in analysis and research, and we have many examples of how that has an Im impact. It wasn't that. It was that we could try, with no delusions of grandeur in a large healthcare system, to build an institution which could be a bit of a counterweight to the money and the politics which so dominated 
and dominate uh, not only healthcare but our whole political system today, and which could be uh, which could be a force for focusing not on money and politics but on people. We don't do a lot of work on hospitals and health professionals or any of that. If you look at our work, you boil it down, it almost all focuses on people and what's happening to people in the healthcare system. So to go back to my grandmother, it really was the political science store. It was a kind of political science vision of what's broken in healthcare uh, and a way in which we could not fix it but try and be part of the solution. So um, at, this is a little hard for you to grasp now. At the time, the idea that a foundation would directly involve itself in policy, in government, in analyzing legislation was not only unusual, it was radical. Now many foundations followed suit in different ways, lots of different ways, and lots of foundations are involved in policy. That's normal. Not then. Uh, then it was front page news. Foundation to engage with government. I can't remember all the headlines. So I was sitting in my office one day and I got uh, a note, a handwritten note, from the then dean of all foundation presidents. And the note said, literally, this is all it said, Dear Drew, you will drag us down and destroy us all. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you for writing. <laughs> And later, another prominent foundation president, when we started our media campaigns, which I won't have time to talk about today, our joint ventures with giant media companies in the US and around the world on issues like HIV and STDs, was quoted in the newspaper not long after as saying how low, we had a partnership at that point, I think it was with MTV, I can't remember, it's saying how low will they go? <laughs> and that one I answered, I said we will go wherever we need to go to reach young people and save lives. But at the time, these were viewed very, very differently. And certainly, we did understand that trying to be objective, and you can never be totally objective, we made choices about what we worked on, was, is not neutral in the shooting war of, of national health care. But I actually deeply believe in something. What I believe in is an activist, but not partisan vision of foundations and the whole nonprofit sector. I have never understood why foundations uh, should be a quiet occupant of a netherworld that exists mysteriously between government and the market and the private sector. I have always believed that they can be a true force and an aggressive force. I also don't think it's good if foundations, the right-wing ones are pawns of the uh, conservative establishment or the left-wing ones are pawns of the democratic establishment. I think foundations should find a way to stand up for themselves and it trans should translate into everything that they do. That's another speech I do not have time for today. So, every single thing that we have ever done at the Kaiser Family Foundation, I don't know how to stretch this enough, flowed from what today I'm calling the strategic intuition about what could be our role and what could be our niche, what has become our niche on the national health care scene. For example, it's why we became an operating foundation. Uh, which means we don't make grants, which was not appreciated at all when we, when we did it. Um, because if you think about it, our institutional goal was itself to create an institution which played this role on the national health care scene as opposed to supporting the good works of others. An entirely honorable thing to do. I've done both. That is the very definition in the IRS code of direct charitable activity. 
That's why we became an operating foundation. Um, it's why we are California-based, but we had to have a big D.C. presence. Some of you know we built a building in D.C. We have a conference center, a broadcast studio. But we didn't want to become a Beltway organization. We wanted to remain California-based so we would have some perspective beyond you know, what some subcommittee chairman felt was important for next week. To do what we needed to do, basically we needed to invest in two capabilities. One was the ability to produce real analysis and information in real time, big league, and the second was the ability to communicate broadly about our issues. So all of the many programs, and you may bump into a few of them, but not all of them, uh, basically are one or another example of investments in those institutional capabilities. In the beginning, we developed our first programs like the Kaiser Commission on Medicaid and the Uninsured, which is actually an idea I had at Pew, but they wouldn't do it. Um, uh, our polling program, uh, our Medicare program, um, our media partnerships. Program design is non-trivial. The art of what you do in our business is developing programs that actually can make a difference. I don't have time for much on that today. But even more important was uh, having a philosophy of communications. I think Bob would say that one of the things that we're known for is our philosophy of communications, probably more even than uh, a unique approach to generating policy data. And it has four parts. One part is that it's not dissemination. Uh, you mentioned I'm on the governing board of the Institute of Medicine. The Institute of Medicine is a different animal. It produces studies and disseminates the study. That is not what we do. Communications for us is continuous, every day, all the time, about our issues. We also put out studies. Um, like a news channel that's on, whatever that New York channel is, WINS 1010, that's on all the time, 24 hours a day. Secondly, we are a producer of information but we are also a broker of everybody's information, a synthesizer, a translator, the best information in our field. That second role is probably more important than the first role. Bob gave a fabulous speech about this once, probably doesn't know I remember it, when he was president of the Association for Health Services Research, the importance of brokers uh, in health services research, which by the way is totally different from health policy research, a different subject. Um, third, at our place, um, communications is everybody's job. It is not something that we hand off to a communication staff at the end of, a hall, of the hall. And so our relationships are between all of our experts and everybody in the press. Very early in my tenure, I remember talking to one of my most senior people who lectures here, uh, who's one of the most senior people in healthcare. Uh, and I said, you need to call the New York Times. And she said, I can't. I need to do my real work. <laughs> well, today, I can't stop her from talking to the New York Times. And that was a culture shift. And finally, the most important thing is we produce a spectrum of information, which is critical to our overall institutional impact. It starts with basic facts and then heavy-duty analysis and modeling and polling and real journalism, many of you know, we run a fully certified national nonprofit news service. And it is the combination of all those kinds of information that give us our institutional impact. Our biggest discovery was the power of basic facts. Many of us have PhDs. We were trained to pursue the seminal article. 
We didn't understand that a fact sheet on the uninsured or Medicaid could very well be our most important product. We discovered that. We learned that on the job. Uh, a few more things, and then I'll quit. We also sought a very different internal culture at the organization, which worked for us. And this has to do with management. Because as I observed foundations and worked in them, I basically saw too many which dissolved into budgeted fiefdoms that related to factions on the board. All the money was locked up, and so you couldn't be opportunistic. Well, for us, where we don't control our agenda, our agenda um, was John McDonough's agenda when he was on Capitol Hill. We had to be in service largely of that agenda. We also worked on issues which weren't on the agenda, like the uninsured for many years or Medicaid. Uh, and um, uh, um, so, we needed a different style, and the main uh, uh, answer we arrived at, there were many others, to creating a different opportunistic, flexible organization was, we have no program budgets in our organization. It's a free-floating pot of money, and it goes to the best opportunities and ideas every year, and that has been um, our answer to creating an entrepreneurial and opportunistic organization. It's often not pretty. I'll hire some senior person and they'll say, what's my budget? And I'll say, you don't have a budget. And they'll say, what do you mean I don't have a budget? And I'll say, trust me, it'll be all right. And it is, and that has worked very well for us. We also, if we're different as a foundation in many respects, we're equally different in our approach to uh, spending and finances. This gets a lot of attention in the sort of backwaters of foundation, the foundation world. There are two kinds of foundations. Uh, those that try and maintain the real value of their assets, they basically spend an amount equal to 5% of their principal every year, which is the norm. Then there are a few that are spending out all of their money, like Atlantic Philanthropies. We don't do either of those things. Um, it's of necessity, because one of our big challenges is we don't have enough money. Uh, and so we occupy a middle ground where we make continuous judgments about assets versus our mission and the work we have to do. And basically we just try and cover uh, our spending plus inflation if we can get it every year with our investment return. It means we spend a lot of time on our investments, our investment strategy, which has been very, very successful, but it is a constant uh, struggle. Um, we also uh, uh, do accept outside funding, but we're funny about it. Um, much more for our global work and very little for our domestic work because our independence is one of our key assets given our mission and we just really can't afford to be tied to other organizations' agendas. So money is a big issue for us. 2008 was a struggle for all nonprofits with invested endowments and it was a big struggle for us as well, and we got through it. But I can't tell you how much time I spend on budget, on investments, on making sure we have the resources that we need to just do what we do. Let me just say a word about evaluation. Not anything profound, but one of the interesting things about us, which is different, is that we live in a world where it's continuous in real time. So we put something out now, and I can literally just kind of sit in my office and watch the computer screen. And in 20 minutes, the left-wing talking points are up and the right-wing talking points are up. There may be a call from HHS. There may be a call from the, from the White House. Within an hour, the press is on it. And so we have, this is 
happened in the last 10 years. It also reflects a change in technology uh, and how we all live and the blogs. A kind of real-time way of calibrating, are we doing the role we want to do? How is our stuff being received? It's, it's very, very different. And the one other point about us, which is, I think our mistakes are the exact opposite of the mistakes of most other foundations and certainly those I've worked in, in that. The big mistake that uh, most foundations I've been involved in make is that they and the world they're trying to influence are like ships in the night, in that the stuff they do is so blue sky, it can't be digested by the policy world they're trying to influence. We make just the opposite mistake when we make it, or we are prone to the opposite danger. And that is we're so close to the policy world that I'll sit back after a four-month period and say, we just invested a lot of time and effort in what really was just a food fight on Capitol Hill that had no real meaning. We blew it. That is our, you know, we don't want to be another OMB or another CBO. Our trick is to be relevant and still work on stuff that has broader meaning. And that's where we make mistakes. Um, we have a lot of challenges like everyone. We're now a mature organization, so it's a challenge to keep innovating and changing. We do. In the last several years, we've eliminated a number of programs. We've completely changed our global role. We've launched our riskiest initiative ever in Kaiser Health News, which is going extremely um, well. As I said, resources are a big challenge. And I have personal challenges. One of them is how to stay close enough to uh, the substance to feel that I really know what's going on when I've got a board and all of that. Um, and the last one I'll mention um, is uh, just being not, not being able to say what I think. I mean, I don't have academic freedom because I have to abide by the same organizational rules that the rest of us do. Our benefactor, who was once as famous as Bill Gates and is totally forgotten now, Henry Kaiser, he had a saying. It was, find a need and fill it. He also had another saying, on all of his, pink, his cement trucks were pink. And on the side of them it said, it takes a tough guy to drive a pink truck. <laughs> but, but the find a need and fill it was great. I think if you do that, which is what we've tried to do, you'll always work out fine. And if you follow your strategic intuition, I think you will as well. Drew, Thanks. let me get a couple questions in in the time. Come on. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Stephanie Moran. I'm a third-year doctoral student in health policy. Um, and I was just really intrigued, your last comment, that other foundations are often accused of being so blue sky they're not relevant. And I think... I didn't say they're often accused. I accused them. Right. Okay, so you <laughs> accuse. Well, I'm wondering if you would think the same critique could often be made of academic research and that we're distanced. And if so, um, how should we as young researchers be looking to change that paradigm to actually have influence? Um, well, sure, that's true of some academic research, but, uh, you know, I think academic research has a different role, uh, and it, re it really is to try and establish um, what is true uh, and um, underlying truths, and uh, the trip from academic research to policy relevance is often not self-executing. And it's up to translators and brokers to often to tease out what is policy relevant. Uh, I don't mean this comment to sound harsh, but um, it's rare that um, uh, something in a referee journal is what moves the world we live in. Uh, but it's frequent that something in a referee journal 
a piece of something in a refereed journal makes its way to the world that we live in. I don't have time to read the journals anymore. It's pathetic. But I know what's in them through a more complicated process. It's actually the one Bob described. And you should find this old talk that he did. It's really quite brilliant. That wasn't how we're supposed to end. Next question. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jeff Fuhrer. I am in the MPH program on healthcare policy and management. And I just had uh, two quick questions for you. You brought up strategic intuition, which mm -hmm. I myself think is incredibly important. And it sounded a little bit similar to what Malcolm Gladwell espoused in his book, Blink. And I was just wondering oh. if you have any sort of recommendations for how you develop your strategic intuition and how you encourage your staff to apply it. And then slightly related, although a little bit different, how do you get close to the substance? What do you do to actually see what's going on and how do you follow everything considering where you're at? Uh, you know, I, I have no magical answer about strategic intuition. I, 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 the, 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 except to say don't be afraid of it. I mean, I've been thinking about this today, whether even to use the word. Uh, I was almost afraid to admit that that is the basis of the big decisions that I have made, <coughs> that there isn't some more scientific basis to them. Is that a problem? But there isn't. And um, it has served me really well. So have the courage to um, at least make it a part of um, your decision-making process. At the same time, it's really important to listen to other people, to be open to what other people have to say. And in the end, if you're in charge of something, you know, you do have to make a decision. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're just deciding yourself in a closet. And that's really important as well. Um, what was your other question? How do you stay close to the substance? You mentioned it was every, every which way I, I, I can, but the most single most important thing. Um, I mean, other than just a lot of stuff's online, is 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 uh, by talking to people. Uh, and that's where I learn about what's important, what's new, what's hot, and that requires getting out of the office and getting out of California, uh, which is probably which is hard. But it's also one reason why. Don't aspire to this. I do 300,000 miles a year, which is a number exceeded only by the dean and Michael Sinclair. Yeah. <laughs> We have time for one more, maybe? Two more. Okay. Hi, Martin Reedy. I'm a first year in the two-year master's program in Society, Human Development, and Health. And I was going to ask similar questions to what Jeff had, but you mentioned East Coast and West Coast mm -hmm. and having two sites set right. up. But I'm, I'm from Oklahoma originally, ah. and I don't see, and maybe I just don't have enough experience, but I don't see a lot of um, difference. I, well, I, don't, I see a huge difference in what happens in the middle of the country, and but the coast seem to be. It seems to be people seem to hopscotch over Mid America, and I'm wondering what organization or maybe even Kaiser, maybe looking to the to Mid America, saying how can we bring the whole country into this discussion? Because sometimes I think it just ends up East Coast, West Coast. Well. Right. I think you're making a broader point. <laughs> there, there are two coasts which ignore the middle. There's no question about that. And the many parts, not, not just the middle. The point I was making was a little different, and it's about the, the bubble in Washington and, and Capitol Hill. And life, really, for an organization like ours, which does health policy, can be entirely about what the staff or the chair of some subcommittee you know, thinks about. And, 
um, what hearing they're having next week, even if that hearing is entire is is about legislation that's going nowhere, and it's very seductive, and um, you know they smile at your staff and tell them that if you did this policy brief, it could be incredibly useful, but it's really about nothing, <laughs> and so it is in that sense, not the coasts, but the Washington bubble that it's extremely useful for us to not become a Beltway organization or we will just become another Washington policy operation. And we've always felt that way, even though we also lose by uh, being based in California because we're a little disconnected some, sometimes. But your broader point about the country is, exact, is absolutely right. One more. Hi, good afternoon. Um, my name is Cleo Samuel, and I'm also a third-year PhD student in the Health Policy Program. And I just uh, wanted to hear a little bit more about uh, the cultural shift you described that took place when you assumed uh, your position at Kaiser. Um, I imagine that there were a lot of different parts that were at play, um, playing a role in your ability to help foster this cultural shift in the organization. And so um, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that, the specific strategies you used, and New, new strategies that you're developing in order to continue that? Well, I'll try and answer that as briefly as I can. Um, I had tremendous support from the leadership group on the board. I was brought in to do this with this um, strategic intuition or vision as the, as the uh, plan. It's, it's what I was brought there to do. I had carte blanche to do it. So that really wasn't the issue. I, I could hire who I wanted to hire. What I was much more worried about was would this be repudiated by the outer world or the outside world we were operating in? And for several years, people looked at us, what are you doing? What is your agenda? You know, it took, oh, I would have to say really a decade before we were fully accepted in the way that we are today. And that was a struggle, establishing our credibility. And you know what I came to see and came to learn, and this is true of all our new initiatives now too, I believe this. You can explain things uh, really well, but ultimately you are judged through the work and you do and through your products, and it just takes time. But that was really the issue, the, uh, whether, whether this very different approach we were taking, whether this mission we thought we were on uh, would be accepted, whether we could establish the credibility we wanted to establish. And we did, but it took a lot of hard work and a lot of time. We made some mistakes in the early years. We did it, but that's what I was worried about. It was a risk. We're going to close. Just remember he started out as a fellow here. <laughs> Probably would have been sitting in this audience. And so we thank Drew very, very much for really giving us insights here. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share Decision Making Voices from the Field.